Section 12 of By the Marshes of Minas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. By the Marshes of Minas by Sir Charles G. D. Roberts. The Blue Dwarf of Belmare. Part 1. The sun was shining hot and bright in my face as I opened my eyes. This was not unusual, but I felt a moment's wonder at the intolerable inflexibility of my couch. Then a choking sense of horror came over me, preceding the realization of my miserable plight. I sat up, bracing myself with my hands on either side upon the warm, wave-rounded rocks, and turned my eager gaze toward the sea. A few paces below me the water was lapping with a simulated mildness, a sort of reticent pulsation which barely hinted at the turmoil still prevailing beyond the windless shelter of the cove. Past the yellow-brown rock jumble of the point the waves still ran high, with a purple undertow in their blueness, which told of a fury not yet quite assuaged. Farther out, perhaps a mile from my refuge, a low reef stood up sharply from a snarl of white surf, and on the easternmost spur of it clung the fragment of a ship's prow, with bowsprit pointing straight heavenward. I noted that it was the time of low tide, which counted for the reef's exposure. I noted, too, but without even the dullest surprise, that no living soul was to be seen about the wreck. Neither was there wreckage along the shore anywhere within my straining vision. I covered my eyes with both hands, and my throat contracted in a dry sob. Of the merry little company that had sailed from Boston for Halifax in the God's providence, manifestly it was I alone who was left alive. Presently I got up, resolved that in this bitter strait I would yield to no unnerving remembrances. What had fallen had fallen. I would set my face towards the days to come, and demand of life compensation for this brute buffet. The sun was near to the height of noon. By journeying a little to the west of north, straight across the peninsula, I reckoned I should without fail strike some one of the Acadian settlements between Annapolis and Grand Pré for I calculated that I was now not far from the lonely harbor of Rossignol, on the Atlantic coast of Acadia. Exhausted to the verge of death by my long swim through the darkness, I had slept perhaps twelve hours there on the naked rocks, and the midsummer sun had well-nigh dried my uniform. My hat was gone, my black hair, at all times rebellious, was now confirmed in wiry curls, crisp with salt. My sword was still at my side, crusted into the sodden scabbard. I drew it forth, looked with discontent upon the swift encroachment of rust, and then debased it to the task of prying oysters from the rocks for my noon meal. In faith, I had a hunger that proved me still all sound and whole. I ate abundantly, not knowing how long it might be ere I should again have food more satisfying than the berries of the inland woods. The beach at this point was skirted by a line of cliff, of no great height, but just here in a measure unassailable. 
I walked, perhaps a mile to the west, over rock and sand, seeking trace of my lost comrades. But some whimsical current of the coast had carried them otherwheres. Then, scaling the heights, if, being in truth so low, they might be called heights by a stranger's courtesy, I retraced my steps to a point immediately overlooking the spot where my senses had so late returned to me, wishing from that elevation, the highest in the neighborhood, to take a final and more extended view before plunging into the forest. I approached the fringe of green shrub which masked the brink of the cliff, but on the instant, instead of parting the foliage to peer forth, I dropped like lightning behind its shelter. Below me, so near that I might have dropped a stone among them, was a band of Indians, the Micmacs of Acadia, examining with attention my footmarks on a patch of sand, and gesticulating toward the wreck. A moment more, and they started at a long, deliberate lope along my trail. I knew of these Micmacs. Just at this time, French and English were vying with each other in the bloody game of paying for scalps. Never had the price of an English scalp been so high. The Micmacs were a brave and businesslike tribe, caring little for bloodshed in itself, but quite merciless when they had an object in view. Scalp money was always an object. When, therefore, there was no bounty on scalps, they took prisoners and treated them with easy tolerance till exchanged. With a price on scalps, prisoners became a mere tradition. I thanked a merciful heaven, therefore, which had so led me back upon my trail, and warned me of my imminent peril. I praised my sires, who had bequeathed to me great strength of wind and limb, and a certain handiness in running, and I bethought me of some cunning in woodcraft learned among the rocky hills of New Hampshire. It was not without good hope of baffling my sleuth-like pursuers that I dropped back into the woods and ran, at a good pace, northward the earth being soft here and the trail broadly palpable i ran straight without subterfuge depending upon my start and my speed to enlarge my distance an hour later i came out upon an open ragged hard-crusted country of thickets and boulders here i ran cunningly breaking my trail from time to time and seizing every chance to draw it blind this reach of barren was about two leagues across, and I struck the thick woodland again at a point much west of the general trend of my course. Here, encountering a shallow brook, babbling westerly, I trotted with patience down its shaded channel for the space of an hour. Its amber stream was swept in places by sturdy boughs of ash, maple, or water birch, and by and by, feeling spent, I swung myself neatly up into a tree, clambered from that to the next, and yet the next, as a liveried ape might have done, and coming to a broad, commodious crotch, rested moveless for half an hour. Then, feeling that I had set my pursuers a task to try their perspicacity, I dropped to the mossy ground and hastened directly northward, hungry indeed, but not a little pleased with myself. While it wanted yet an hour or more of sunset, 
the woods fell away before me and i found myself on the edge of a ravine at whose bottom clamoured a living little river two or three hundred yards to the right the ravine turned northward at an acute angle there was a blithe music about this wilderness water which made me think it good company for a solitary fugitive and moreover i saw no chance to cross it i resolved to follow it until some better course should present itself i was letting myself down the steep when from the corner of my eye i caught glimpse of something bright a flutter on the wind i raised my eyes and held my breath with astonishment straight across the ravine scarce fifty paces as the bee flies leaning against the tilted trunk of an old birch tree stood a young girl her profile toward me gazing down into the swift water the brightness which had caught my eye was the streaming of a yellow silk shawl twisted about her waist to serve as a girdle her hair fallen loose and smitten by the sun was of a deep red the strangest most living red i had ever seen in a woman's locks of a dull green was the gown which hung almost to her ankles showing dainty yellow leggings of deerskin her gown had no sleeves and her arms round but girlishly slim were tanned like her face to a glowing ivory richness the profile was of a purity that made me think of certain engravings from old greek seals contained in a folio of my friend master anthony apgood's in boston for some seconds i almost feared to breathe lest she should dissolve and vanish then i craved to see her full face to make her eyes meet mine i was too engrossed to marvel at such a vision appearing in the wilderness of acadia indeed i am of the temperament to which miracles always seem more probable and more real than the platitudinous sequence of expected things presently i said speaking clearly but not loudly are you a woman or a fairy or the witch of these wild waters or a dream with a slight start she lifted her head and looked at me i could not at the distance tell the color of her eyes but they were very large set far apart under a serene low brow and very dark they rested upon me with a mingling of wonder and apprehension but she did not speak plainly thought i she does not understand english but in french i felt constrained to stick to the most direct and simple phrases mademoiselle said i i am a stranger and pursued by enemies who seek my life i am an english officer lately shipwrecked on your coast i beg the hospitality and protection of your house her face had changed as i spoke like a summer pool under veering gusts first pity then a darkening of anger then compassion again and a rising interest then fear and straightway she answered yes monsieur but oh no no there is danger do not come go away go and pointing vehemently up the stream she turned and vanished behind the thick branches i did not obey the gesture and the tones of her voice were not command at all but entreaty moreover there was danger she said 
the danger behind, from which I had been fleeing so diligently, was forgotten. And even more diligently, I set myself to seek the danger lying ahead. I desired it, because it was likely to afford me at least one further chance to speak with or to look at her. In an instant I was at the water's edge. There was no practicable fort, so I ran in feverish haste down the bank. After turning the abrupt corner, of which I have already spoken, the stream ran between smooth perpendicular walls, and I was obliged to climb once more about halfway up the side of the glen, which now swept to the right in a bold curve. A stone's throw farther on, the walls parted, and I found myself upon the lip of a mountain tarn, the fairest pool my eyes had ever rested upon. There was magic in the transparency of the water, whose surface, unruffled save where the hurried river came in, flashed with its emerald lights along the nearer shore. In three or four places the greenery of the summer forest slipped fairly down to the water, but everywhere else a smooth wall of dark yellowish rock rose to a height of ten or fifteen feet above the windless mirror. The whole amphitheatre engirdling this liquid crystal was not a third of a mile across. There was no apparent outlet to the pool, but as I gazed in bewilderment I discovered a darkness in the rock wall opposite, and made it out to be the mouth of a low cavern. I thought, too, there was a disturbance of the water at that point, and concluded that the pool's overflow was sucked down into the heart of the hills. My instant desire was to get over to that side of the water where the vision of the ravine had disappeared. But straight ahead I saw a little cottage of a rain-beaten gray and with wide flaring eaves snuggled down into the leafage. Here, doubtless, dwelt the lady elusive, and hither she must come by the long way around the pool. I resolved to be there ahead of her. I pushed forward with more haste than circumspection. Through the partial screen of branches I caught view of a little garden plot, neatly tilled, and then a smooth yard space, sloping from the cottage threshold to the pool. The place looked not perilous, unless its very magic were a peril. There was no wind, the circumscribing hills being so high. There was no sound, not so much as of a bird singing, or a hyla piping in the leaves. But suddenly from up the veiled slope came a low, swishing murmur, as of a body pushing swiftly through a grain field. I could not explain it, and there was something ominous about it. Instantly on the alert, I drew away from the thicket and nearer to the rock-rim of the pool. A moment later the thicket swayed with noiseless vehemence. Instinctively I sprang aside, drawing my sword in the same motion, and as I did so a long yellow body shot from the leafage. In the ruddy light it was like a glowing thunderbolt. I saw the flattened ears, the wide, greenly flaming eyes, the set, bared claws. Had I not jumped, the panther would have caught me on the shoulders. But I had jumped, and as the shape of death passed by through the air, my sword pierced it in mid-loins smoothly. 
There was a harsh sound, and clinging to the sword-hilt, I was thrown to my knees as the bulk went on. My grip was not to be broken, so the steel dragged clear again, and the beast, doubling himself under the stroke, came to the ground upon his head, and rolled over the clean brink into the water. I sprang to look down, and saw him sink like lead, leaving a discolored foam behind him. It was a neat stroke, neatly timed. I wiped my sword with no small satisfaction. But as I looked up again toward the cottage, the complacency upon my face must have faded into anxious amazement. The new foe whom I saw, darting toward me in malignant and ominous silence, was of a fashion quite strange to me. At first glance I did not recognize it for human, but then I perceived it to be a baboon-like dwarf, with square head, set close upon shoulders of amazing breadth, and arms of such a length as to almost reach the ground. His twisted legs were ludicrously thin for the support of his misshapen trunk, but were sufficient to propel him toward me with a speed which seemed beyond all necessity. He wore a coat of ragged fur, which added to his brute-like aspect, and his mouth was wide, grinning, like an angry but breathless dog's. All this was no more than interesting to me, but there was something else that at first, I confess, went far to shake my self-possession. His hairless face was blue, a horrid, unnatural color. I could see that his strength was greater than that of ordinary men, yet he seemed to me rash in attacking, unarmed, one who had just shown himself at least a ready swordsman. He was descending upon me not twenty paces distant, and his yellow eyes, boring into mine, seemed like sword-blades in themselves. I stood lightly balanced, ready and determined not to kill, if I could avoid it, for this horrible being, I guessed, was a servitor to the maid of the rocks. Suddenly a huge knife, whipped from under the ragged coat of fur, was hurled at me, swift and elusive as a flash of light. My readiness saved me, however. I swerved at the same breath. With a lightning parry my sword turned the vicious missile, and it went hurtling idly aside into the underbrush. On the very hiss of his diverted weapon, however, came my antagonist— it was no moment for the courtesies of the code. Perforce I stooped to tricks, in fact to this trick. I fell down, so that in falling my outstretched foot intercepted his ridiculous spindling shanks. With a kind of squeal of rage and terror he went sprawling headlong over the brink, vainly clutching for a hold. I heard him splash, heaving into the emerald crystal of the pool. End of section 12, part 1